Before I begin, I'll add a quick word to what Alex said about the School of Life and Doctrine this afternoon. He mentioned that all the barbecue was gone last week. It will not be replenished today. So it's, it's actually a potluck supper, and so you can see on the, in the announcement there, according to the alphabet, if you're coming. If you are a member of our church, please plan to bring a main dish or a side accordingly. If you're a visitor with us, we'd love to have you come as well. And do not feel obligated to bring anything. Just come and be our guest for dinner and for classes. There are two adult classes that are available this uh, fall. And so come and enjoy the fellowship and the teaching and the food this evening at 5 o'clock. Genesis 23 is where we are today. And this chapter is starting to wind down kind of the story of Abraham, which is the story of an epic journey of... uh, a very flawed man with a remarkable faith who followed Yahweh and trusted in his promise. It's also the story of Sarah, his wife, who is a very flawed woman with remarkable faith who followed Yahweh and trusted his promises. And this chapter 23 is the story of her death. And it's a little story that reminds us of some really big gospel truths So you young disciples, you kids who are still with us here in the theater, this morning, notice as we read this passage here that Abraham buys a piece of property. It's not a new church property, as some churches long to have, but it is a piece of property that he buys, and he buys it in order to bury his wife, but he also buys it for another reason. See if you can tell what that is as we read Genesis 23, beginning in verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead." Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I might bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named, In the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was 
to the east of Mamre, the field that, with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you because you have not left us alone and you have not remained silent. You've given us your word and you've given us your spirit as well. And we pray that you would give us more of the same and open our eyes to see the good news of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, even right here in this little story. We pray that you'd help us to see the big truths of it in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. In the late 1800s, about 130 or so years ago, Leo Tolstoy, the Russian writer, author, wrote a short story. The title of the story was, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Maybe you've read it before. In that short story, you meet a man named Packham. He's a peasant, presumably in Russia, I guess, and he's a peasant who longed for a better life than what he had. He was a small landowner. He owned a little plot of land, and he farmed it and worked his plot to try to increase his holdings a bit, and he did incrementally in small amounts over the course of time, but it was never really enough. And then finally, he learned of a people called the Bashkirs who lived far away, and they, the report was, were a simple-minded people who owned vast lands, and they were willing to sell their land for cheap. So Packham packed up his stuff along with his hired hand and traveled to the Bashkir's land in order to claim his fortune. And he arrived there, and he brought some gifts to their chief to gain favor, and, and he told them, I'd like to buy some land. And the chief said, that's fine. You can buy some land from us. Here's the deal. We offer our land at the price of 1,000 rubles per day. Packham was kind of confused. He said, what does that mean per day? And the chief explained. He said, here's the deal. You, you show me the area of the land where you want to claim some land, and I'm going to place my hat on the ground at sunrise. And you have all day long to mark your territory, to walk the perimeter of your territory and mark it with these stakes. The only thing is, you have to be back here to my hat by sunset, and you leave your thousand rubles in my hat. And if you don't return by sunset, you forfeit your money and you forfeit the land that you have thought you claimed. Packham thought that was a great deal. So the next morning, the chief marked the spot and Packham set out. And you can guess what happens. Of course, Packham, who's long for more land, sets out and sees this beautiful land and he begins to mark it with stakes and he sees another field and a pasture and, and a, a stream and some some attractive uh, pieces of land that he desires to have, and he continues, and finally he turns left and begins to head in a different direction to claim a different section of land, and the day begins to pass, and it becomes late, and he realizes he's too far away from the marked spot, and he begins to turn and head back, and he begins to realize he needs to run, so he runs and runs and runs until he finally, right at sunset, gets back to the chief with his hat 
And Packham, by that time, is so exhausted. He's overdone it, and he's reached the hat, and he falls at the hat, and the chief congratulates him. You made it. You claimed your land. And Packham's hired hand sees his master laying there at the foot of the chief, and he kneels down to help him up, and he realizes that Packham has died of exhaustion. He's overdone it. And so his hired hand takes his own shovel, digs a hole in the ground, six feet from head to toe, buries Packham in it, and thus the title question of the short story was answered. How much land does a man need? In the end, only six feet. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you have. doesn't matter what you've accomplished or what people think of you. In the end, all you need is six feet. It's a little story with a very big truth to it. Here in this chapter, after decades of wandering, Abraham is claiming a little piece of land. And Sarah's death and burial here is a little story, but it's included in Scripture for something more than than simply showing respect for this faithful woman. The last time we read about Sarah was two chapters ago in chapter 21. There in chapter 21, we read about the story of Isaac having been born and then being weaned. And I explained to you then that that would be probably about three years after his birth. And so it was basically a a third birthday celebration that Abraham threw for Isaac at that time. That was two chapters ago for us, but it was about 34 years ago in the timeline of the story. Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. She was 93 at Isaac's birthday party in chapter 21. And now at age 127 is when she dies. It's been about 34 years now with no word of Sarah in the story. And yet clearly she is a significant character. She's the love of Abraham's life. She's a strong woman of faith, according to the the account. And Scripture even remembers her in in a couple of occasions as a significant character. Isaiah 51 recalls that Sarah, along with Abraham, of course, is the origin of Israel. Though modest they were at the time, they are the origin of the Israelites. And the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, chapter 3, writes of her recalling Sarah as the picture of a holy woman of God. She is the example for women even today of what it means to be truly a godly woman, Peter remembers her as. She's, uh, in a sense, the Virgin Mary of the Old Testament, the miracle mother of a promised Redeemer. This little story of her death reminds us of some, some big gospel truths about God's people. And the first one is that God's people are not immune to grief. They're not immune to grief. The story doesn't dwell on it, does it? But it doesn't ignore it either. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And she died, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now you have to remember that Sarah and Abraham were actually half-siblings. They shared the same father, but different mothers. Now, a marriage arrangement like that in our day would be rather odd, right? 
But in the ancient days, it was not so unusual. In fact, it was relatively common, I suppose. And so the reality is that Abraham had known Sarah for all of her life. He was 10 years old when she was born to Abraham's father by way of a different mother. He had known her all of her life. They probably got married when she was a teenager, and so they'd been married for over a century. Imagine that. She had, along with Abraham, believed God when he called Abraham to go. And Peter writes in his letter of her, he describes that her adorning was the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That was Sarah. Abraham walked with her for a hundred years. She followed her husband's lead in his journey, and yet she was no weak-willed woman. You know that from some of the stories. She asserted herself with Abraham on some occasions, even if her Hagar plan with her maidservant, Abraham, this isn't working for us to have a baby, you have a baby with my maidservant, even if her Hagar plan was contrary to God's promise, she was pushing her husband towards that promise, even if she was doing so in the flesh. She waited patiently, even with her momentary skeptical laughter, as one chapter tells us, about. She endured decades of a faith-stretching journey, and faithfully by Abraham's side, she walked for a century of marriage. She was beloved of Abraham. And so Abraham mourned and he wept because God's people are not immune to grief. I mean, we know that Isaac also grieved for his mother. We know it in the next chapter, chapter 24. It's the story of Rebekah and Isaac meeting each other and getting married. And we read at the end of that chapter that Rebekah became Isaac's wife and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death because he missed his mom. She, she, she died and, and her death left a hole in the family that simply could not be patched up because God's people are not immune to grief. Now, we've all known grief, and, and some of us more severely than others, for sure. The first time that death ever came close to me that I can recall was April 10, 1976. It was the day after my eighth birthday party. My grandfather was 76 years old, and he made every effort, along with my grandmother, to come to my eighth birthday party in a park here in Dallas in that April, and uh, he came to be with me and my eight-year-old friends, dressed as he was every day of his life that I ever knew him, in a dark suit with a pressed white dress shirt and a thin, dark tie, and a 1960s fedora on top of his bald head. And he came to that birthday party. And that night, my brother and I, along with our cousin Philip, went to spend the night with our grandparents down in their house in Pleasant Grove, southeast Dallas, as we would do occasionally. And early in the morning, about 6 o'clock, we were awakened by voices in the hallway. My grandfather had died in his sleep. And so the event that marked the end of his life was my eighth 
birthday party at the end of his 76 years. And I don't think that I wrestled deeply with grief at that time as an eight-year-old. I, you know, I was confused a bit by death. I was sad that my grandfather was no longer. Certainly death was a mystery to me, but I will tell you, my grandmother would miss him for 20 years. Now, you've known grief too. I know that you have. I mean, I've heard some of your stories. I've been with you in some of your stories. You've known death for sure. And you've known broken relationships too. I mean, those seem to be all too common, at least from my point of view. They seem to be somewhat frequent in our world, even in, within the Christian family. And um, your heart aches when that happens. And it just continues to ache. It just does. I think it's, though, somehow validating for us to see it here in Abraham's story, to see that it's not ignored, that the one to whom God was paying such close attention was not immune to grief. I think you have to see that the experience of grief in this world does not conflict with and it does not discredit the faithfulness of God in keeping his promise to redeem. It merely highlights our great need for that redemption. You can see it because Abraham didn't dwell on his grief for long. He rose up from before his dead and he went to work. And the work that he does here reminds us of another big truth about God's people, and that is that they are not at home in this world. We're not at home in this world if we belong to God. Verse 4, Abraham said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. He's simply recognized that he's an alien. He's a stranger in a place where he does not belong. Well, I should change that. He's in a place where he belongs, but he's with a people with whom he does not belong. Abraham was 75 years old when he began his journey when God called him at first, and he had entered the promised land from the north, we know from the geography, and he traversed the length of Canaan down to the south by the age of probably 76 or so, a year later, and then he ventured on into Egypt. And now, at Sarah's death, he's 137 years old. It's been six decades now that he has wandered this land without a personal stake in the ground. And so notice the negotiation that he begins in verse 4. He says to them, Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now you you recognize from reading on already as you have that Abraham is not looking for a handout. He's, he's, He's looking to be in the market to buy. He wants to purchase a piece of land. But the thing is, the Hittites are not immediately selling, and I'm not sure if it's just because they're super polite or because they don't really, frankly, want to sell. And so you see what they say to him in verse 6. They answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you're a prince of God among us. They have great regard for him. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. In other words, Abraham, we respect you and we honor you. And you're a, you're a pretty good dude. We like you. And we have choice tombs among us. Just lay your Sarah in one of those tombs and let her rest there. 
It's a pretty kind offer. It's generous of them. They're hospitable. And yet it just won't do because Abraham is in the market to buy. Why? Why is Abraham in the market to buy? It's because the Hittites are not the covenant people of God. And the Canaanites are not the covenant people of God. Abraham had been called to something more than that. He'd been called to be set apart, to be distinguished from all the other peoples of the world. He'd been called to be holy unto the Lord. Go, God said to him, from your country. Go, God said to him, from your kindred. Go, God said to him, from your father's house. God had separated Abraham from this world. And so Abraham is, in fact, in the right place, but he's with the wrong people. The Hittites invited Abraham here to, in a sense, become as one with them, to bury his dead along with their dead. But that was not God's call on Abraham. God's call on Abraham was to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct from the world, even despite this world's seemingly friendly accommodations. Because the spirit of the spirit of the world dwelt in the Hittites, but the spirit of Christ actually dwells in Abraham. The, the Hittites are at home in this world. But Abraham was meant for something better. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In the same way, Christ has no fellowship with the spirit of this world. So he calls believers, he calls you and me to break with our sin, to say no to ungodliness. He calls us to have nothing to do with the false gospels of this world. And there are many of them. And they are very tempting. I mean, you recognize that most of us by this point in, in our country's kind of societal history have probably given up on the idea of objective news reporting, haven't we? I mean, besides the local channels that report on the local homeowners association and high school sports and, you know, the Dallas Mavericks, besides that, if you, if you look at any of the national news broadcasts, you have a choice to make between one of the Republican channels and one of the Democrat channels. I mean, they don't call themselves that, but we all know that's what they are. They even speak in those terms. I mean, I was noticing days ago, watching one of them and then turning to the other, how they, they speak in terms of we and they, us and them, our team and their team. That's the way that, that they speak. And it's very tempting to pick a team because your preferences regarding life probably feel a little more comfortable with one team than they do with the other. But you should recognize that what they're doing is simply inviting you to bury your dead in their tombs. Come on over to our side. Become as we are. Lay yourself down and rest here because besides, what's, what's a few shekels of silver between you and us? That's what they're saying to you. It's so tempting to make, you, to make yourself at home in this world politically or materially or socially or emotionally even, but don't do it. Don't do it. 
Abraham was a sojourner and a foreigner among the Hittites, and he was intent to remain that way, even at his own cost. He would not accept their friendly accommodation because Abraham knew something else about God's people. He knew that God's people are not without claim on eternity. We're not without claim on eternity. Verse 8, see what Abraham says in response to them. If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give to me the cave which he owns at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Abraham is in the market to buy. And he wants it to be known. He wants it to be publicly attested by all that are there so that everybody knows it, for the full price, let him give it to me, in your presence, as a property for a burying place. And the negotiation that follows seems a little bit quirky to us. You know, you you see in verse 10 how Ephron, this apparently notable man among the Hittites, was sitting there at the city gate with everybody else, and he hears Abraham call his name, and he speaks up. And... um, Ephron, it seems, yields to the initial group offer to simply give the land to him. Verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave. I give it to you. Take it and bury your dead. And, um, you know, that's, a, that's an offer from Ephron. It's very respectful of Abraham, but Abraham just won't do it. Abraham responds, No, accept the price of the field from me. And so Ephron then smoothly suggests a price. It's kind of a funny back and forth of bowing and acknowledging respect for one another. And, and Ephron kind of smoothly suggests a price. He's, he says you know, to Abraham, uh, what does he say? Listen, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what's that between you and me? Eh, I mean, it's just 400 shekels of silver, Abraham. It's not a big deal. Whatever you want to do, old buddy, old pal. And so... Abraham doesn't even counter. He simply writes the check on the spot and the deal is done. Now, that might make you real estate folks a little bit uneasy because, you know, I mean, unless you're in a post-COVID economy, you don't pay the asking price. And Abraham apparently wasn't in a post-COVID inflated real estate economy. You don't pay the asking price, right? You counter-offer. I mean, if, if Abraham had simply had a licensed realtor, he probably could have gotten it for three twenty-five, right? But the thing is, Abraham wasn't looking for a bargain. He was looking for a claim. And if Abraham had accepted it as a gift, or even if he had bargained for a cheaper price, it might be that generations later, Ephron's descendants probably would have disputed the deal and would have come and reclaimed what Abraham had acquired. And so by paying full price here, Abraham was actually making this claim permanent. So you have to remember in the story of of Abraham that that God's promise to him included some different pieces. It included a promise of a place. Go to the land that I will show you. It included a promise of people. A people, I will make of you a great nation. It included a promise of protection. I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you, I will curse. And it included a promise of a plan as well. In you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. 
So you've got these different elements of the promise, a place, a people, a protection, and a plan. And, and this story has to do with the place, doesn't it? God had promised the place for Abraham's offspring, and Abraham believed the promise. Because God had promised, God's people had a claim. And Abraham is, as it were, the point man. Abraham is the property committee, we might say. Abraham is the one who gets to negotiate a bit here. Not to negotiate, but to, but to begin to, to navigate the way towards possession of a piece of property. And notice the repetition in the last paragraph, beginning in verse 17, that you see there. It's very important. The field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all that was there <clears throat> throughout the whole area, it was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. And then verse 20, the field and the cave that were in it was made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. The repetition there tells you that the claim was now staked. There's a stake in the ground. Abraham now has a burying place, a tomb. And Sarah would be buried there. Some four decades later, Abraham would be buried in that tomb. Isaac and Rebekah would be buried in that tomb. Jacob and Leah would be buried in that tomb. And even at the end of Genesis, you see at Joseph's death, Joseph, they're in Egypt at that point. They've been there for a while, and they'll be there for a long while longer. And Joseph tells his, his family as he dies, swear to me that you will carry my bones back up to that tomb. And they do. But what good is that tomb? What good is a tomb full of bones? Well, today it's, it's just a place that's marked by a Muslim mosque. It's a holy place. And, and if it weren't in the West Bank and confined by the political restraints, you could probably go and visit there. But, but why does that tomb matter today? Because that tomb anticipated another tomb in the Promised Land, didn't it? It anticipated a tomb in which the Son of God in body would be buried. A tomb from which the Son of God in body would be raised. And because the Son of God in body endured real death and endured a real tomb and was placed there in your place, you who are in him by faith can anticipate what will happen in your own tomb. You too will rise along with Sarah and Abraham and all that were buried in that tomb because God's people have a claim on eternity. You heard it in that New Testament reading earlier from the book of Acts. Stephen, the disciple, one of the first deacons, is professing his faith to the Pharisees who are about to take his life. And Stephen explains to them. He gives them a history lesson. He says, God spoke to this effect with Abraham. He said that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Abraham held fast to that promise. That though 
This life in this world would be as one who doesn't belong. Life in the promised land would be with God to whom you do belong. And just so, your life in this world now is one in which you don't belong. And you're tempted by enslavement to sin, and you're afflicted by the effects of the fall, and yet you have a claim on eternity. And after this world, we who are in Christ shall come out of our tombs and worship God in that place the new heavens, and the new earth, the promised land, forever. No, you're not immune to grief. It's come before, and it will come again. And no, you're, you're not at home in this world, and if you feel that you are, then you need to check yourself. Don't settle for its friendly accommodations. And no, you're not without claim on eternity. You're Life on this earth will be brief, but your claim on the next in Jesus is forever. It's only a little story, but it reminds you of big gospel truths. May you believe them and rest in them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we... Praise you and thank you again that you have made these promises to your people and you did so through Abraham and through Sarah and you maintain your faithfulness to those promises to us even today. And so as we come to the communion table together, would you increase our faith to believe that you are the one who is faithful and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.